We've just uh, sung together on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Uh, The author of that hymn is a man named Samuel Stinnett. Samuel Stinnett uh, is a Baptist from the 1700s. Stinnett was born in England in 1727, and uh, he was a pastor's kid. Uh, He actually becomes the successor of his father's Baptist church in England, the church his dad had so faithfully led. And part of uh, Samuel Stinnett's life as a church leader and follower of Jesus was to compose many hymns. And uh, there was a particular Baptist hymn book that was being produced and published in 1787. Stinnett's uh, contribution to this included many hymns. In fact, uh, 38 of Stinnett's hymns were in that collection, and one of which is now the most, one of the most widely celebrated of his, of his uh, contributions, and it's what we enjoy tonight, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. Uh, what are the metaphors of this song trying to suggest to us? Well, they're immediately lyrics that are based in the life of Israel's history. Right. So Israel at one point stands at the Jordan. Okay, they are on the banks. They are looking to their inheritance on the other side. And what Stinnett believes, and I think the New Testament confirms this, is that the experience of Israel being redeemed and going through a wilderness of temptation and heading toward the promised inheritance of God is not only their historical experience at some level. That's also true for the Christian life. And the Christian life is one where we are redeemed out of slavery to sin. We go through the wilderness as pilgrims pressing toward the new Jerusalem that the Lord has promised. We can say, can't we, that in a way we are on Jordan's stormy banks. We are looking toward this celestial city to borrow from John Bunyan. And one of the powerful elements then of Stinnett's hymn is to be able to take those pictures of Israel's history and to help us see our possessions lie as well in Canaan. Beyond the storms and the darkness of this life, um, we we think about, as one writer um, summarized it, that Canaan is the world where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more, borrowing from Stinnett's very lyrics. Um, We will rest there in the love of Christ forever with no more effects and corruption of sin. In other words, we find ourselves uh, having pressed through this pilgrimage toward the inheritance that is ahead of us. And in Israel's posture in Numbers 34, they're in the historical setting of nearing this conquest. Inheritance is on the other side, and they have gone through much. They have gone through sorrow and sickness and pain and death. Uh, They have experienced it and for decades have undergone a death and rebirth as a very nation in that wilderness. Consider with me tonight the placement of Numbers 34, first of all. Numbers 34 is not something early in the book, is it? It is near the end of the book. Near the end of the book, this is appropriate because the end of Numbers, these latter chapters, are wrapping matters up with a view toward the promised land. Numbers 34 is going to talk about the boundaries and borders of this inheritance. Therefore, with this being such a a prominent thing on the near horizon, the placement of this section at the end of the book here, near the end of the book, is quite appropriate. But also, look what comes right before Numbers 34. In our last time in Numbers, we saw in Numbers 33, verses 50 to the end, 
He says to them in verse 51, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones, destroy their metal images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. Verse 54, you shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. Now that reminder at the end of Numbers 33 helps us also see the appropriateness of tonight's passage being where it is. The content of Numbers 34 will describe for us the land they were just told to go in and to seize. They've been told, occupy that land, inherit this land by lot and according to clans. Settle in it. And if they were to say, but settle where? And how far? And exactly, Moses, what do you have in mind when you're talking about this land of Canaan? You know, what what should we envision it to be? Numbers 34 is the right chapter to come next. Numbers 34 is an encouragement to the people of Israel. Because they haven't even crossed the Jordan River yet. And the Lord is going to say to them, here is the land you are going to inherit. And this would be a great incentive. This is not some kind of murky chapter. There's a lot of detail here. It's moving in a clockwise direction through different tribes. Here's what their, nor- their southern border is going to be, and their western border, and their northern border, and their eastern border. And these details are going to be encouraging to a people who are going to know God is giving us this land. He's thought this through. The Lord's plans in heaven are going to come to pass. In the ancient world, something else to know about this uh, kind of document tonight. In the ancient world, this genre of writing, Numbers 34, fits with what was sometimes known as a king's grant of land to vassals in the ancient world. If you had a king who, as the sovereign, had subordinates or vassals under his sovereignty and influence, and he could grant them a land, well, he wouldn't say, well, there's some land I want you to inherit. It's sort of over there in a direction. No, you, you know that details actually matter. Boundaries matter. If you've ever had to go through the process of purchasing land, you know the boundaries matter. You say, all right, how many trees inward does the mark go? You know, in other words, when we have to do landscaping and mowing my yard, where's my boundary? When am I all of a sudden in my neighbor's yard? Boundaries and borders of land are significant. That was that case in ancient world. It's the case today. The road ahead for the Israelites will not be easy. The book of Joshua shows us that the Lord gives them victory after victory after victory. But the book of Joshua is not a book of ease. The Israelites are heading nevertheless into the promised land, a destination that has been revealed in advance. Verses 1 through 15 are the borders of this promised land. uh, The boundaries and borders. And what he tells them in verses 1 and 2 is just an introduction to these locations. Let's look at these first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance. The land of Canaan as defined by its borders 
And then in verses 3 and following, some of the borders begin to be articulated. But I want to notice something in verse 2. In verse 2, when you enter the land, what is this land? The land that shall fall to you for an inheritance. Thinking of land falling to someone, immediately you might think, well, they're going to have many of these Canaanite inhabitants fall to them. Uh, So you might think of uh, the conquest. Here's the fall of territories and inhabitants of the land falling to the Israelite victors. And I think that's a legitimate read of this verse. At the end of Numbers 33, we did also read that lots will be cast for the inheritance to be determined where. And, uh, and that idea of a lot is also wrapped up in this notion of the land shall fall to you for an inheritance. Land, uh, a lot could be cast, or in other words, a lot would fall to be one thing or another. The land that shall fall to you for an inheritance probably speaks both of the conquest but also of the Lord's sovereignty to dispense where they should be. Chapter 34 is a chapter of details. The Lord does not give the Israelites some vague direction. Cross the Jordan River and you guys take it from there. No, that is not how chapter 34 reads at all. In fact, we first read the southern border, followed by the western border, the northern border, and the eastern border. And uh, what we have on the map here is like this. We're going to start reading in what will be described as the southern border. And then it's going to move in a clockwise direction. There's an order to this then. The southern border, followed by the western border, followed by the northern border, and then the eastern border. And then we've made it all the way around. Let's look together at the southern border in verse 3. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom. And your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east. And your border shall turn south of the ascent of the Akrabim and cross to Zin. And its limit shall be the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazer Adar and pass along to Osman. And the border shall turn from Osman to the brook of Egypt. And its limit shall be at the sea. Verses 3 to 5 are giving you very specific ancient Near Eastern locations. The Salt Sea is the Dead Sea. What you have labeled on your Bible map as a Dead Sea is what is sometimes called the Salt Sea in the Old Testament. And then this area of Kadesh Barnea, they have some history there. That is a location that has been a part of their wandering as a people. And then when it says the sea by the brook of Egypt, we mean the Mediterranean Sea. Therefore, the southern border looks something like this. There was a reference to Edom, and Edom is right here. And so you have this southern border and these various territories like the Dead Sea, Edom, Kadesh Barnea, the wilderness of Zin, the Mediterranean Sea. It is the case that not every location in Numbers 34 is known with absolute certainty by cartographers and archaeologists. But enough of these places can be identified to where our Bible maps can portray a very plausible reconstruction of the scene. And what I'm showing you on the board here tonight is what Crossway has produced in their ESV translations for the copies of the ESV that have Bible maps. That is what this is just blown up for us, okay? So that's the southern border. Now the western border is the easiest of all. It's verse 6. And verse 6 says, For the western border you shall have the great sea and its coast. 
This shall be your western border. And now that's just quite nice, isn't it? That's it right there. The western border means this great sea, we call it the Mediterranean Sea, well, that's on the west of their land. That's the easiest thing to remember alongside its eastern border, which we'll see in just a moment. But we've seen the the southern border and now the western border. Verse 6, the shortest and clearest of the four borders. Now the northern border. In verses 7 through 9, this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, which is Mediterranean Sea, you shall draw a line to Mount Hor. This is a different Mount Hor than earlier in the book of Numbers. During the wilderness wandering, Aaron died on a place called Mount Hor, and that was away from this particular region. This is a mountain, Mount Hor, that's approximately in this location, which is nowhere near where Aaron died. And so you have this great sea, and they're going to begin to draw a line this way, and continuing uh, east with that line. In verse 8, from Mount Hor, you shall draw a line to Lebo Hamat, and the limit of the border shall be at Zadad, which is approximately right here. Then the border shall extend to Ziphron, and its limit shall be at Hazer Enan. This shall be your northern border. Um, so, southern border, western border, and then the northern border is approximately here. And then we move to the eastern border. The eastern border is the last. And in verses, five, in verses 10 through 12, the eastern border reads like this. You're, you shall draw a line for your eastern border from Hazer Anan to Shepham. And the border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ayan. And the border shall go down and reach to the shoulder of the sea of Chinnereth on the east. And the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its limit shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around. Here's what we just read. We draw a line, continuing down here, to the place which, in this case, is called the Sea of Chinnereth. We know this as the Sea of Galilee. When the Old Testament refers to the Sea of Chinnereth, the New Testament calls that the Sea of Galilee. We're talking about the sea that Jesus stills the storm on. The sea that He walks on the water upon. This is the sea that has traveled much. And right along the northern border of this sea are places like Capernaum, Nazareth, locations near this northern part of Israel. So, we've, we've tried to follow along some of these instructions When the uh, northern border ends here, they basically said, take a line and draw it to where it gets to the sea. And then from the Sea of Chinnereth all the way down the Jordan River to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And if um, if we try to follow this route, we're going to be able to be on good grounds for what modern Bible maps lay out for us as the boundaries of the Promised Land. The Israelites are to have these borders marked in such a way. Now, here's what I I want you to know now about the largeness of this territory. This is the projected Numbers 34 boundaries. Let's keep in mind two visuals. The Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee. In this next slide, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. This is what the inheritance looked like by the time the settlement happened in the book of Joshua. There is, there is a notable difference in the amount of land projected for the Israelites and what the inheritance of the land 
actually ended up being in real time, real space in Joshua. What's, what to know then is that Numbers 34 held out for the Israelites more land than they actually ended up conquering and settling in. The Numbers 34 held out more space, more space that goes this way, southeast, more space that moves way up here. If you go back, you have territory way up in this direction that is not occupied by any tribe that stretches up there. The land's proportions in Numbers 34 were greater than the actual Joshua inheritance. When we read the book of Joshua, followed by the book of Judges that confirms a number of these things, we realize that the Israelites did not drive out all the Canaanites. They did not subdue all the idle places. And God had warned them in the book of Numbers, before Numbers 33, at the very end that we uh, recited a bit from a moment ago, that if they failed to drive out all the inhabitants, then according to Numbers 33:55, those you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. What we've noticed then is that Here are these boundaries, this southern border, western border, northern border, and eastern border that are now a bit smaller north and south than originally the case. We haven't talked about what's on the eastern side of the Jordan. Remember this story from Numbers 32. In Numbers 32, Reuben and and, uh, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh they end up not desiring territory in Canaan. So our passage tonight does address this. Look in verses 13 through 15. It's a reminder about those two and a half tribes. Now, the the backstory to this, you'll recall, is that the Israelites have been camping along the plains of Moab, right in this area here, and they're soon to cross over the Jordan River. But Reuben... And Gad, and it turns out part of Manasseh, they want to stay. They say in Numbers 32, help us or don't ask us to cross over. Now the agreement ends up being cross over, help us fight, and then you can return. This allotted territory here is the result of those returning tribes. So let's look at our passage tonight and how it's going to address that. In Numbers 34... Verses 13 through 15. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half tribe. Okay, did you notice the specificity there? The inheritance by lot, which the Lord has commanded to be given, is associated with those two and a half, those nine and a half tribes. Why only that number? We know there are more than nine tribes going in to inherit land, right? Well, wait, what's going on? Well, in verse 14, for the tribe of the people of Reuben by father's houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by their father's houses have received their inheritance. And also the half tribe of Manasseh. The two and the half tribe, two tribes and the half tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho toward the sunrise. This is the inheritance of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And I'm using that word loosely. 
when the borders of the promised land were just laid out, where was the eastern border of the promised land laid out? The eastern border of the promised land was the Jordan River. And it seems to be signaling then to us in the book of Numbers that Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are living outside the land of promise. They understand this as well. They said to Moses in Numbers 32, we don't want to cross over. And Moses said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, it's a paraphrase, but it's close. He was very upset. He's like, you're not going to pass over. You're going to, you're going to discourage the hearts of the people who are heading into the land. And so having a sense, I think, that they were going to settle in this land, they, Moses gets them to agree to fight and then return. But the promised land proper, the boundaries of the land, do not encompass Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Which means, here is territory projected. Not all of this territory is filled. And this gray territory, the gray territory is what Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh end up occupying. Not even laid out in the borders of Numbers 34. So something strange, you know, there's, there's a lot of names here. I know a lot of, lot of verses that cover these territories, which, you know, don't necessarily ring a great amount of significance with us. And we understand that we're so far removed. But there are some fascinating observations geographically here because they don't occupy all the land the Lord had laid out for them. And then two and a half tribes occupy land that's outside the promised land instead of in it. It's at least somewhat concerning that there's not a desire by all the tribes to receive the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are here, and instead of crossing the Jordan, they say, well, what if we just, what if we just stayed here? We've got, we've got flocks, and this land looks great. Was well, what about the promised land? This was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, these were, these were people who were willing to settle, and in Numbers 32, they do. Moses warns them, you better keep your end of your word, because in Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out if you don't. So he warned them about the seriousness with which they were embarking their decision on. What we're noticing then tonight in the first 15 verses of our passage are the boundaries of the promised land that are laid out. And the eastern boundary does not include Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, we shift to another part of the passage tonight. I want you to look with me in verses 16 and following. Who's going to lay all of this out? They're not going to just try to um, navigate it on their own without any assistance or leadership. Instead, leaders from the tribes, chiefs, are going to be set apart to oversee the receiving of these territories in these borders. Verses 16 and 17 aren't naming among the 12 tribal chiefs yet, but it is going to tell us who is leading the whole administration of these tribal allotments. And we're not surprised. In verses 16 and 17, the Lord says to Moses, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance. Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. Let's think for a moment about why those names matter. 
Is Moses going into the promised land? He is not. He's going to die at the end of Deuteronomy. Which means in the book of Joshua, who will be the new Moses to lead the people? It's Joshua, right? That means, according to the Lord here, Joshua, the new new Moses, is going to lead this whole endeavor of the allotments. Now, who's going to be discerning the will of the Lord in the casting of these lots? Well, according to the Old Testament, the high priest contains something called the Urim and the Thummim in his breastpiece, which helps to divine the will of the Lord and to speak to the representatives, whether Moses or Joshua or others, what the will of the Lord is. And I think that's why Eliezer is involved. Why isn't it Aaron anymore? Aaron has died. Aaron's son Eliezer will be the high priest who alongside Joshua will lead the whole determination of these lots, determining what and determining which tribe goes where. Now look in verses 18 and following. Who will these administrators, Joshua and Eliezer, work with? You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. And the only name we know from this list from any other part of the Old Testament is the name Caleb in verse 19. These are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob. Judah, however, is the prominent tribe in that it is the tribe from which the king should come. We namely think of David, the first king from Judah's tribe, since David's predecessor Saul was from Benjamin. This tribe of Judah is highlighted there and first in the list, Caleb's name, the son of Jephunneh. We also know of Caleb that he was of the Exodus generation and that he's the only uh, spy named in this, the only person listed in this uh, tribal list who was a spy from Numbers 13 and 14. Caleb had a good report, right? He said, let's go take the land. Let's go. And, um, and here he is a leader among the tribe of Judah. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. All of these other names, we do not have any significance or repetition of them anywhere else. But let's do our best to follow along, shall we? Look in verse 20. Of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amahud. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Elahad, no, Eladad, the son of Chislon. In verse 22, of the tribe of the people of Dan, a chief, Buki, the son of Jogli, of the people of Joseph. Now, when it says the people of Joseph, it's going to give you two tribes because Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and each of Joseph's sons received allotments. So we see from Joseph here, the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and of the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan. In verse 25, of the tribe of the people of Zebulun, a chief, Elizaphan, the son of Parnach. In verse 26, of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Paltiel, the son of Azan. In verse 27, and of the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Ahahad, the son of Shelomim. Of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pedahel, the son of Amahud. Verse 29 says, these are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. But if you were to count the names, here's something you would know. There are not 12 names. There are only 10. There are only 10. There are 12 tribes of Israel. But why are there 10? 
Because when all is said and done, only ten tribes will be inside the promised land. So there is no representative that we heard from Reuben. There is no representative we heard from Gad. The only reason we hear about a representative from Manasseh is because half of Manasseh will be in the promised land. So half of Manasseh and then the other nine tribes, so ten names. Even that list gives the sense of something falling short, doesn't it? I mean, normally you're giving something representing every tribe. But the reason there's only ten is because of the story in Numbers 32. We've got to remember that earlier scripture to see here. We don't even need a leader from every tribe now. Because not every tribe is going to settle in the promised land. Which even saying that out loud ought to simply weigh upon us with a, a fresh sense of surprise. That these Israelites were not all gung-ho, as they say, about getting into that land. When you go to the book of Joshua, which I'd like you to do for a moment just to observe something with me. In Joshua 15, I'm going to turn there. And, um, and I want you to notice um, how Joshua is going to report for us some of the things we just read in Numbers 34. In Joshua 15, rather than looking at verses, I want to look at subheadings. The subheadings that our translations are so good to provide for us that give you what to see about this chapter. What's my subheading say? Well, in chapter 15, the allotment for Judah is mentioned. And then in chapter 16, for Ephraim and Manasseh. 16 and 17, that is. And then in chapter 18, the remaining land includes an inheritance for Benjamin. Chapter 19, Simeon and Zebulun and Issachar and Asher and Naphtali and Dan. But nothing about Reuben. Nothing about Gad. And again, the reasons are Joshua is reporting for you the receiving of the inheritance in the land. And that must mean by logical deduction, not all these tribes are going to be involved in that, unfortunately. The book of Joshua tells us not only of the conquest of the land, but that the particular allotments were fulfilled. Those parts of the book of Joshua are not easy reading, I assure you. The first part of the book of Joshua is full of the drama of the conquest. And you get to the latter part of the book of Joshua, and there's a lot of details about the allotments. But here's something to remind ourselves about, even though that's not the easiest reading among the Old Testament. The book of Joshua is reporting for us the divine faithfulness of God. He is, Joshua's records there are helping us see that what God promised to the people, He is absolutely delivering. When those allotments were cast, that land was received we just come to realize in the book of Joshua that the inheritance did not encompass all that it could. In fact, at no point in Israel's later history is all of this land occupied by the people of God. It increases a little bit under David's rule because David is a warring king and engages in a series of skirmishes. But in this little area right here, you know this word Gaza? You know, Gaza and some of these other areas around here, they're associated with the area of Southwest Promised Land where the Philistines dwelled. And the Philistines proved to be an issue in the Promised Land in the days of David and beyond. I mean, David had to fight Goliath from Gath, who was a mighty Philistine warrior. 
And the reason they're warring with the Philistines is because in the promised land, they never subdued all the peoples anyway. And we have to recognize how historically this created tensions and problems for the people of God. And therefore, at no point in any of Israel's history from Joshua forward, did their land encompass all of this territory at one time. And yet Numbers 34 holds out for them. These can be your borders. Go and take the land. The Bible talks about inheritance for Christians beyond just the Old Testament. I think when the New Testament picks up on the language of inheritance, it expects us to be dialed in to the very important Old Testament hope of inheritance of a land of promise and dwelling with God. In other words, let's think about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. Jesus gives these beautiful beatitudes in Matthew 5, doesn't he? And one of them is, blessed are the meek. And the language in Matthew 5 is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. Now, if you don't finish that sentence, and if you just know your Old Testament, you realize, well, you see, God has promised inheritance for the people of God, and it's land, it's the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it would be reasonable to say that the meek shall inherit the promised land, let's say. Those who serve the Lord, fear the Lord, walk with God, where will they be? Well, they will be where God promises His people will be. But that's not the end of the sentence, is it, in Matthew 5. The language is the word earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The reason Numbers 35, no, we're not 35, are we? The reason Numbers 34 matters there for the whole storyline of the Bible is the storyline of the Bible is about dwelling in space with God. And I don't mean outer space. I mean in territory. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. Adam placed in in the Garden and then Eve from Adam made so that in this sacred space they dwell with God. Outside Eden, after the exile from that land, the people of God multiply and are fruitful and generation after generation unfolds. You go all the way to the land of of a, a promise to Abraham and he has space promised to his descendants. And it's an echo of Eden. We were made to dwell with God in sacred space. That's why the tabernacle in the camp of Israel mattered so much. That's why the city of Jerusalem and the temple under Solomon that was built there mattered so much. Because these places and the sacred dwelling sanctuaries all symbolize drawing near to God outside of Eden. Numbers 34 contributes to this. Numbers 34 is saying to us, here is the space. Here is the territory. Come now. Dwell with God. Exercise dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. Live for the glory of God. And yet we realize in a fallen world, more is needed than just these particular territories. It's all part of a hope of dwelling in a new creation with God. Which is why territory or space is emphasized at the end of the book of uh, Revelation in the Scriptures. Revelation ends with the people of God dwelling not in a garden and not in just a boundaried promised land where these particular borders against the Mediterranean Sea or the Jordan are highlighted. The book of Revelation ends with new heavens and a new earth. The takeaway from that, friends, is that Numbers 34 is contributing for us the same Hope for the people of God that we will dwell with God and in the fullness of the word of God, we see that the promised land was always a type and a shadow. 
The promised land was always to point forward to a new heavens and a new earth. That the earthly Jerusalem would point forward to the new Jerusalem. And that the Garden of Eden, at the land of promise, these particular borders and boundaries, they're all part of the larger hope of the people of God to dwell with God in His presence. Which is why the New Testament makes such a big deal about inheritance. And we inherit... As 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about. In 1 Peter 1.3 we're told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now if you think about the Old Testament inheritance. The Old Testament inheritance was something that they could lose. And they did, of course, in the exile to Babylon. It was something that could be burned and ravaged. It was something that could experience corruption and curse. Even divine judgments poured out upon the land of promise. We would not say of what we read in Numbers 34, that those borders and boundaries was about something that was imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But that inheritance points to one that is... It is a type and a shadow of what is greater, what escalates to the consummation work of Christ for His people. An inheritance kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, I think that song that we opened with tonight is correct. We are, if you will, heading toward the Jordan on the stormy banks looking at where our possessions lie. The, the, the scriptures are helping us see the template of the Christian life to be like the historical experience of Israel in a way. We've been brought out through the act of redemption, sustained through the journey toward the promised land, and God will deliver for us unfailingly this unfading and imperishable inheritance laid up for us in heaven and in the new creation. We can count on this, just as Numbers 34 has given all those specifics to incentivize its readers to encourage their dominion and conquest, their hope in God. How much more should our hope then be sure and firm? There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. You know, we sing hymns with these lines. And you know, when I was growing up, we would sing, I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. You know that one? And so you think about these different hymns. What are they doing with these uh, hymns and old gospel songs? They're taking the language of Canaan. They're taking that land language. And they're showing us in those lyrics what it's all been pointing to all along. What a great hope we have in Christ. Let's pray.